Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. This is not therapy. This is real life. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Adam Stern, who is a psychiatrist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He's written extensively about his experience as a physician, including publications such as the New York Times, Boston Globe, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of American Medical Association, and the American Journal of Psychiatry. Today, he joins the Therapy for Real Life podcast to discuss his new book, Committed, Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training, which is a personal memoir describing his four-year medical residency at Harvard. Dr. Adam Stern, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, listeners to the show know that the Therapy for Real Life podcast aims to translate therapy and burnout prevention concepts into everyday self-care strategies. And one of the most common questions I often hear as a therapist is, what's the difference between a psychologist, psychotherapist, primary care provider, and psychiatrist? And luckily, you are the first psychiatrist to join us on the show. So you were the perfect person to describe that role. And I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, compare and contrast a little bit about that role of psychiatry compared to different ways of interacting with mental health. And I'm especially curious to hear any changes over time, you know, what you first thought the role would be when you started your psychiatry residency, as you describe in the book, up until today. You bet. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right that the role of the psychiatrist has evolved over time. And it is different in so many ways than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, even 50 years ago. Um, I think that everything that you mentioned, all the different sort of uh, versions of um, providers of people who are um, in the apparatus of mental health care, uh, they all have different roles. Some of them are overlapping. Some people, uh, some of those specialists have particular skill sets that are unique to, to just them. And so uh, most psychiatrists probably pride themselves and have training in the following. Um, certainly the overall diagnosis and assessment of mental health disorders, certainly um, the psychopharmacologic management of uh, psychiatric illness, things like major depression, generalized anxiety disorder, all the way to schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, anorexia nervosa, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, all kinds of different uh, mental health concerns that, that people may have. Um, a, a psychiatrist should be trained to assess them and then to help formulate a treatment plan. Part of that treatment plan may be related to medications, uh, which is one of the ways that psychiatry is distinct from a lot of other therapies. Uh, by therapies, I mean people who do therapy. Um, and at the same time, psychiatrists are trained in the basics of therapy. Some psychiatrists are really good therapists and some are more uh, sort of basic therapists, uh, or I should say they have basic training, but they've decided not to focus on that in, in much of their career. And so when I mentioned earlier that the evolution of psychiatry as a field, a lot of that's been seen in the ways that psychiatrists practice 
in the modern era, many psychiatrists are not doing as much therapy and are incentivized for better or worse, I would say mostly worse, to do more psychopharmacologic uh, interventions. Mm-hmm. And how did your understanding of the role change, you know, when you first joined the residency program at Harvard and all the way through that four-year period, at least, did you have any changes in your own perceptions of that role? Definitely. So, you know, one one thing to know is psychiatrists go to medical school before they go to residency. And in medical school, I went into to, to my medical school education hoping to be something else. Um, I knew I come from a sort of medical family. My father's a cardiologist. And even though I was a psychology major in college, I, I said, I want to be a doctor, the white coat wearing, stethoscope wearing kind of doctor that I knew from my father. And I want to help people that way. But it wasn't until medical school that I looked back and I realized the things, the rotations and the um, educational experiences that I had that I most, that I found most fascinating and interesting and therefore that I'd be most motivated to become excellent in those were all the brain and behavior and uh, mindfulness and uh, psychiatric courses and and rotations that we had so uh, much to my own chagrin i ended up saying you know the thing that i have to go into is psychiatry because it's the thing that will be most interesting to me that will motivate me to have a fulfilling career and the thing that i think i'll probably be best at And then when I went into psychiatry residency, you know, I matched at a program that was really, um, how do I put it? Uh, I matched at the Harvard Longwood program and I wasn't expecting to match it at such like a prestigious place. Um, One thing that that a lot of people don't necessarily know about is the match, right? That that your your residency is determined by a computer algorithm based on where you've ranked the programs and where they've ranked you and I actually matched at my third choice. I was expecting to be in a New York program, uh, uh, one of two that I ranked ahead of the one I ended up at. And I'm so thankful that I ended up at my third choice because it turned out to be a wonderful experience. And it, it happened to be one of these really prestigious programs that opened a lot of doors. Um, but I'm getting off topic. The, the, the answer to your question is things were very different than I anticipated uh, because the first two years of residency in psychiatry is all about severe mental illness and locked psychiatry units and emergency psychiatry. You get thrown into the deep end in terms of clinical management and you learn how to manage very uh, severe illness. And then as you go further into the residency program in your third and fourth years, that's when you actually get to do the things that I went into psychiatry for, which is more outpatient care, psychotherapy, uh, therapy, for example, and getting to know people over a a longitudinal period of time. Um, All those things that I thought I was getting right at the beginning, I I, I sort of uh, had to wait for into my third and fourth year. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Well, you describe, you know, one of the unique parts of your role as a psychiatrist is you get to see that interaction between mental health and physical health. And if listeners are really curious to learn more about this, I highly recommend one of my favorite articles from social work grad school was the Lancets, there is no health without mental health. And they describe the three different pathways that mental health and physical can 
physical health can interact, such as, you know, depression can um, impact uh, metabolism and weight gain and vice versa. Physical conditions like diabetes or thyroid can cause problems in mood like anxiety and depression. And then there's third pathway, the interaction between the two, such as in cases like dementia or HIV related illnesses. And your book captures some of those interactions just beautifully. And you even self-disclose some of your preferences in that first year and the second year, you know, you were thrown some medical cases and, um, you know, didn't have a chance to do that outpatient psychotherapy yet. Can you describe some of those interactions that you saw and the cases that you present in your book? Absolutely. Some of the one of the things that I really um, pride myself on as a psychiatrist is the belief that 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 the vast majority of psychology comes from the combination of your world experience with the biology that lives in your head, right? So the brain, and you know, none of our um, how do I put this? There, there are a lot of ways that people can imagine uh, the psyche existing, um, but but the biology of the psyche, the biology of, of psychology is really where psychiatry lives. And so uh, what I mean by that is that um, when you're doing therapy and someone gets better, there are biological changes that are happening under the surface that we're not seeing, that we don't have access to. Uh, when we prescribe medications, the same, pro probably the same improvement happens. If you were to do really sensitive functional neuroimaging, you could see the same changes happening. You could see the hippocampus expanding again uh, as compared to its shrinkage that occurred during the depressive period. Uh, so that kind of approach, I think, and, and that viewpoint is very uh, sort of essential. And then on, 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 a, on another end of the spectrum or from a different vantage point, you can look at pathologies that we think of as either psychological or biological and realize that they are both and all at once together. So people who have movement disorders or um, non-epileptic seizures, some things like that. There's, a, there's an example in the book that's given of a patient with a psychiatric or psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. These are seizures that look to the naked eye just like any other kind of seizure that you might um, have with epilepsy, but when tested with an EEG, there's no electrical activity that's abnormal. So it's not at all that this person is faking it when they have a non-epileptic seizure. It's that we don't yet understand the biology of why this is happening and that there may be a psychological underpinning behind it. Uh, all of those things can be true at the same time. So I think what you're getting at is, is 100% right. And I think that if I were to uh, cross my fingers and hope 10 years, but more realistically, 20 years down the road, we're going to have a much better sense of how these things function. And that's just a, a, an outcome that I predict because of the rapid advance of things like neuroimaging techniques and even a uh, basic understanding of how neuroscience happens at the cellular level. Hmm. 
Well, I appreciate how you mentioned that, you know, psychology is the combination of our lived experience and our physical health. And one of the great ironies that you describe in your book is patients are often in the hands of practitioners who are often very young themselves and figuring out hashtag adulting. And yet they are responsible for the mental health care of their patients. And you are very forthcoming describing your own experiences of imposter syndrome being ranked at a really prestigious school. And I'm curious how you handled imposter syndrome throughout your residency. Yeah, so the first thing I'll say is that I think that imposter syndrome is everywhere around us, not just in medicine, although it's especially present there, I would say it's in most fields, right? Um, and, and most fields, you know, most professions, I would even go as far as to say that, because when you're new at something and you look around and you see other people functioning, but you don't yet know how to function as well as you will someday. It's only natural to feel the question of, do I really belong here, right? And then if you throw in the variables of being at a place that you felt like maybe was too good for you uh, or had a reputation that was was really strong, um, and then you throw in the element of um, the medical model features a lot of see one, do one, teach one. Is that, is that a phrase you've ever heard before? Yeah. 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 So, Can you talk more about that? Yeah. C1, do one, teach one. It's it's a bit antiquated. And if you ask a real academic medical doctor, they'll say, oh, no, that's we don't do that anymore, which we're much better at teaching medicine than that now. But it, there's still a core of learning by watching and then learning by doing in a supervised setting and then teaching the next generation. Right. And so oversimplified, it's you see someone um, perform ECT, you do ECT yourself, and then you teach the next person how to do ECT. You know, that, uh, that's an extreme example. You would never go that, that quickly with a procedure like ECT. But mm-hmm. the, the, the point is that there's, there's like this progression that happens and you can't learn to do something until you're actually doing it a lot in medicine and psychiatry as well. I think therapy was to some extent like that. We had a didactic background training for, for how to do therapy. We were reading, you know, process notes. We were reading and watching videos that had been filmed about sort of uh, artificial scenarios that might arise in therapy. But then we also, you couldn't quite really master it in any manner, shape or form until without getting in the room with a patient all by yourself, right? And and that to me is a recipe for feeling like an imposter, uh, starting a therapy encounter without, with, no, with the knowledge that uh, I don't know it all yet. I'm probably going to stumble and have to, to backtrack and, and try to do the best that I, that I can, you know, and that's really like the medical model is, is we learn by doing, and, and it's a really kind of wild thing to think about. How did you navigate that with patients? I'm sure some of them called you out on that and said, you know, is this your first day here? You know, how did you <laughs> handle some of those questions? Right. I do. The most, um, the most sort of concrete example of that is that in our residency program at the time, the residents in there, you get your very first, you got your, your very first uh, psychotherapy patients. We call them integrated patients because they might have medications and therapy, both pr- provided by the same person, by, by the resident. And we, we got those first patients in our second year, the end of our second year, really. 
And at that time, because we were mostly working all around the medical center, we didn't have our own offices. So we'd be seeing the patients in one office one day, and then the next week we'd, we'd be in a different office, and the next week, and our name wasn't on the door, just like there was someone else's name on each of these doors. And so it was just so obvious to me at the time that the patient probably picked up on the fact that this guy is so junior, he doesn't even have his own place. You know, like he's just finding a random room to, to, to sit and do therapy with me. And, and no one, no one ever called me out on that, but I always thought like that, that might. And I think I even probably occasionally put a floater out there to patients, uh, giving them the space to bring it up and talk about it if they wanted to if that would be helpful, like, oh, yeah, in a different office. And again, how that must be so strange for you kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know, for better or worse, a lot of the patients that I that I worked with uh, didn't bring up that thing, that aspect of things. Some it was really interesting were generational patients passed down uh, from resident who graduated four years later to resident to resident to resident. So for some patients, I was their fourth or fifth resident in the program and it was so interesting a lot of them uh, at least a, a couple of them that i can think of reported that they almost felt like they were training us uh, that they they appreciated they were gaining some benefit from the therapy but in addition to that they felt like hey i'm sort of responsible for training the residents that come through this program because they had been through it so many times i, I found that to be so humanizing you know and, and true frankly yeah humanizing is a good word for it and it sounds like sometimes that lack of experience can even be a therapeutic tool you know the more i've um, been working as a therapist we learn that you know a good therapist does less talking and more listening and the less you know about something it lets you ping pong the conversation back to your client to talk mm -hmm. about their expertise and mastery in that subject. Like, oh, I've never had experience with that. Say more about that. And so mm -hmm. it actually, you can become more confident in that over time. Yeah. Tell me more about that is a phrase I don't think I ever thought about once before psychiatric training. And it's become, I mean, just, it's so simple, right? Tell me more about that. But it's become become probably the most valuable thing I say to patients because it gives them space to talk to me about whatever it is that they want to on that topic that we're covering or a related topic or a topic they didn't even know that was related but is because when I give them the space to talk about it it comes up yeah. Another useful tool you highlight in your book is the seven second rule that, you know, if there's an awkward pause or someone doesn't answer your question, you, you should wait a whole seven seconds. We can even try it together right now. Let's, Let's go ahead and it. start. Here's our quiet pause. I don't know about you, but in a fast paced clinic environment, to me, that feels like an eternity. And so it takes a like lot of tolerance to do that as a practitioner. What have you learned from the seven second pause? What I've learned is that people in general in their lives, we live such full, to some extent, chaotic lives where we're trying to squeeze in everything that people fill that space. There's a tension that starts to, to fill that space that people relieve by talking. And sometimes you can actually uh, learn something about a patient or they can learn something about themselves by sitting in the silence and seeing where their mind takes it. 
uh, it's an incredibly valuable thing and something that doesn't come naturally to almost anybody right mm -hmm. but I think it's almost universal among people with some experience in the field across our fields you know yeah. that you, you I, I'm still not comfortable in it but I am comfortable enough to know that it's useful to do it I love that. I love that. I think people are more familiar with, you know, drinking and drugging as a way of numbing out, but busyness is also a way that people can uh, numb out from their Absolutely. experience. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You're totally right about that. Mm -hmm. Well, when it comes to burnout prevention, you highlight a lot of moral quandaries that show up as a psychiatrist. And one of them is the tension that exists between valuing self-determination and protecting your clients from mandated care for imminent risk. And the moral injury comes up when you have to sometimes cross your own values to follow protocol or protect the patient. Can you share some examples of when you had to struggle with that in your residency? Absolutely. You know, and I think that that is something that I have still, you know, some years into my career now, I've still never quite become comfortable, but it does become an issue that you have to navigate, that you have a responsibility to engage upon because society has sort of said that you have to do this when there's imminent risk in play. Um, some examples in the book, there is a patient described in the book who has a very severe eating disorder. And uh, there's sort of a cyclical nature of her treatment where um, there, when, when the book sort of starts out, she is inpatient on a locked psychiatry unit, but on the verge, she wants to leave and she's on the verge of leaving and it goes to a court hearing and the judge determines that she's not getting better in, in the inpatient unit and she's not at imminent risk, so she will leave. So she's allowed to leave, so she leaves. And then she shows up later in the book in multiple different uh, settings, but you've see, what the reader is uh, sort of let in on is that between those encounters, uh, things have gotten worse and uh, a different judge uh, had sort of indicated that um, she needed a feeding tube. Uh, she was being treated 100% against her will even though at its core, she didn't want to die. She wanted to be better. She didn't want to continue to become more and more malnourished. That's the pathos of that character in the book is that I want to help her. She wants to be helped. And together we struggle over, you know, spread across multiple chapters and different encounters to figure out how we could, how we could make a difference together, how I could make a difference for her and how she might uh, you know, improve and, and also how she impacted me as, as a person. That's one example. There are others that are more clear cut of patients who are, you know, actively psychotic, um, meaning that they're uh, experiencing perceptual disturbances, they're hearing voices, they're self-dialoguing, they're not taking care of themselves, um, that if they were to be left alone, they might end up in a position where they their health suffered because not just a little bit, but they could die because they weren't taking care of themselves. Th those examples, while necessary to admit that patient and take care of them and stabilize them and return them ideally to a better apparatus, you know, mental health and social apparatus that helps them thrive, um, that's an idealized version of how it goes. Uh, and so uh, we do those things knowing that the system is imperfect and we hope for the best, 
And part of the heartbreak that comes with training in psychiatry is seeing that sometimes it doesn't go well. And yeah. that, that, that's something that I became um, used to, but I never fully accepted. Uh, does that make sense? Or maybe that's the reverse. Maybe I accepted it, but I never got, it still affects me to this day. Yeah, I think that's where the moral injury comes up. And and even, you know, you're required by law, um, you know, according to your license to follow these mandates. Some two other examples that come to mind for me are cases of mandated reporting for child abuse or mm -hmm. having to call, you know, sometimes the police to do a welfare check on someone mm -hmm. who's actively suicidal. And we know that the system is set up in an idealized way to protect folks, but it actually doesn't play out that way. There's lots of discrimination that comes into play and families of color are more likely to be reported or um, treated, you know, um, more brutally when interacting with those systems. So it's no wonder that, you know, something close to 70% of at least physicians are experiencing burnout and 20% or more are showing signs of depression. I'm sure that's on the rise with the, the pandemic. And I'm curious, how, how have you learned to protect your own mental health when caring for the welfare of others? That's a great question. So I think that training is probably one of the most vulnerable times because all the things that we associate with positive, healthy living, things like getting good sleep, being social, seeing people that care about you and caring about them, eating well, exercising, almost all of those are entirely taken away during an intense residency training where you're spending upwards of 80 hours in the hospital with the same group of you know 10 or 15 people uh, and, and, and largely surrounded by artificial light uh, indoors for you know long periods of long stretches, sleep deprivation, eating the hospital cafeteria food, um, et cetera, et cetera. These are these are things that add up to a recipe for uh, really disturbance in your own mental health, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a real problem in training. Um, and then it also continues in different degrees and different ways as someone goes through their career. Uh, and, you know, as we all know, in the last year, things have been um, exponentially more difficult emotionally for a lot of doctors and healthcare pro professionals because of the circumstances of the pandemic. And so I, I think what we're seeing is something really kind of fascinating where I, I'm, I'm, I know for a fact that mental health diagnoses are on the rise and a lot of doctors, anecdotally, I know a ton of doctors are planning their exits from the field mm -hmm. while at the same time, applications to medical school are supposedly way up. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a disconnect because I think that a lot of young people looked at uh, healthcare practice uh, practitioners and, and doctors, they heard the word hero thrown around a lot during the pandemic, and they looked at them as doing good in the world and sort of standing up to this in, intense challenge. But there is a disillusionment that can happen when you enter that world and you train in it. And again, that sort of imposter syndrome that steps in. And even after you've, you've overcome that, then there's an entire career ahead of you uh, with potential for moral injury, hitting on just some of the areas we've already talked about, you know, feeling like, is this work, the work that I signed up for, is it valued? Is it valuable? Is it something that uh, I'm leaving the world in a better place than I found it? Is this my best contribution to society? 
uh, all of those things add up to what I think amounts to a burnout slash moral injury situation sometimes. curious if you have any predictions for how medical training will handle that. You know, I've heard some folks who have gone through medical school describe it as kind of like pimp, put me in my place or, you know, really hierarchical, like it was really bad when I was trained. So we're going to put you through the same rigmarole and that's, you know, the best training, but we, we can see that burnout is quickly rising. And I'm wondering if, you know, will, will med students and resident, tra- resident trainees get like a one hour 101 on burnout prevention or will they start addressing some of the systemic contributors to burnout? Yeah, so that kind of thing, the uh, piecemeal solutions, the wellness trainings, the uh, here, try an hour of yoga, we'll discount at 15% for you, that kind of thing, that is already in full bloom uh, mm-hmm. for sure. And so your, your question is really, are we going to do better, I think, you know, and so you're absolutely right. There is definitely a generational divide that is, um, if not universal, it is, it's been around as long as I've been anywhere near medicine, you know, this idea of the, uh, you know, the reason that they're called residents as trainees is that they used to live in the hospital, at least that, that's the old wives tale about it. Um, and so that's the the uh, common sense answer about it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and over time, they've instituted restrictions on that saying, well, they shouldn't live in the hospital, they should just work there all the time, you know, okay, well, maybe if they work there all the time, and they're doing 36 straight hours, they're not going to be practicing as well as they could if they were well rested. So maybe we should limit it to 24 hour shifts. That change happened when I was an intern, we used to work 30 hours, which was already a limitation from prior. And then when I was a second year resident, it got dropped to 24 hours. And I think now I think it's 16 hours for new interns. Um, And those hours can't add up to more than 80 in a week's averaged over a month, something like that. Uh, I don't wanna, don't quote me on it, but it's something along those lines where they've instituted sort of um, blanket restrictions on how intense the work should be on an hour basis and certain minor little changes here and there to try to improve the quality of life for residents who are working and doctors uh, in their careers who are working. But all of that being said, you lose something when you do that because you do lose that continuity of care, managing a patient's uh, care over a long period of time. Uh, Some of the older, a lot of the older doctors that I know uh, talk about their training as being better quality training because they uh, had that responsibility of carrying a list of patients, making sure everyone was doing okay from uh, Monday morning all the way to Wednesday, you know, morning kind of thing. Mm. And that is hard to determine if that is, if there's a grain of truth there, which there probably is at least a grain of truth, uh, but also maybe there just may be a generational thing. Like I walked uphill in the snow to school and back kind of thing (laughs) that gets passed down. So another area that I think is frankly worth mentioning in this conversation is the idea that American med students go into a tremendous amount of debt to become doctors. 
they, in addition to the financial debt, they also sort of give away their 20s uh, to become doctors. And at the end of the road of their medical school, they were choosing what field they want to go into. And there's a weird incentive if you come out with a couple hundred thousand dollars or more of debt and you uh, have just done this uh, medical school for four years and you've got however many years ahead of you, there's a weird incentive to choose fields that are financially rewarding, which is terrible when you think about it. Mm. Um, and so some of the, the strangest subspecialties uh, attract some of the highest achieving residents, excuse me, med students, mm. because uh, they are more aligned with lifestyle and they'll help the person pay back their debt faster. And, 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 and there's a dilemma there because as a society, those aren't the, um, those are not the priorities we want to incentivize. Uh, but it's what it's the system that's currently set up. This is why we have a lack of family medicine providers or generalists because folks are incentivized to move into more of those specialty professions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Stern, you continue to draw from your personal experiences as a role in your role as teacher and psychiatry professor at Harvard Medical School. I'm curious if you could share one lesson that you would like your psychiatry students to understand about working with patients. And conversely, what would you like individuals going through therapy or psychiatric care to understand about their practitioners? Great question. So the, the first one's easy for me. The, if I had to convey one idea to trainees, it's that the most important aspect of our job, the foundation of what we do is human connection. So you have to actually connect with the person that you're working with uh, before you do any of the bells and whistles that we're trained in. So uh, psychopharmacology, psychotherapy, uh, psychosocial interventions, all of these things are things that we can do. And you might be able to get away with doing some of them um, with 50% effort and doing a decent, okay job. But to do a really good job, which is what we all want to do to really help people, you need to connect with the patient that you're working with, with the client that you're working with. You need to understand them as a human being. That's what drew me into psychiatry as a field was that there was not no field that was where it was as important to understand who the person was and what motivated them to be in treatment. What do they want? How do we help them achieve the life that they want? Uh, you could be a decent, I don't want anyone in any of these fields to be upset with me when I say this, but you could be a decent uh, orthopedic surgeon without getting to know a lot of the details of the person's life uh, outside of that very narrow area of whatever joint you might be working on, for example. Um, but you really can't be a good psychiatrist if you don't understand who the person is, right? So that's the first answer is connect with the person first and then all of the technique, all of the skills that you have get added on top of that to make you the best psychiatrist or therapist you can be. Mm -hmm. The second point is more challenging because I'm not sure that I'm the best person to impart wisdom to patients um, about, about their psychiatrist. Um, I, I suppose that with my experience as a patient and a psychiatrist, uh, it's I would say that it's very important to recognize that you're two human beings that are trying to align for a common goal. 
right? And that's true across the board. That, that's also, uh, maybe that's the same advice I just gave to the residents now that I think about it. But essentially what I'm trying to say is that, uh, you know, it, it's, if you envision your, your therapist or psychiatrist as a guru who's gonna tell you the answers, they're only going to disappoint you. But if you think about them as a well-meaning uh, person who has a different perspective than yours, that has a skill set that might help you live whatever kind of life you're looking to live, uh, you might actually really achieve some great things. I love that piece of advice. Sometimes I share with my therapy clients, like if you're tempted to put me on a pedestal and expect I'm some perfectionist model, well, then I haven't done my job properly because I'm a human being too. And can you imagine how frustrating it is to be a burnout prevention therapist and feel really burnt out one day? It's like, I'm using the best strategies and it's still, it's still hard stuff. And I also appreciate you sharing that you're a patient as well. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about that experience of going to therapy, they say that doctors are the worst patients. Have you found that to be true? (laughs) It's true in a couple different ways. Uh, It's true that we probably put off seeking care uh, more often, more than we should, um, uh, because we think we know what's going on or we think that we don't need, you know, the workup or the treatment that might be indicated. Um, It's also true because we might be demanding of, you know, our own providers, right? We might say, hey, uh, why don't you order this test? Why don't you prescribe this medicine? Because we think we know it all and we don't, of course. Um, But yeah, in the book I write about uh, going to a therapist for the first time myself as a patient during my training and what an experience that was. It, It helped me see things from the other side of the room, so to speak. It helped me understand you know, what little things I might pick up as a patient and what the more important, bigger things like the, how caring the therapist was, how much I felt like they cared about me and how my life was going versus the technique that they used. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those kinds of things became very important. Well, you talked about how vulnerable early trainees can be, especially working long hours and dealing with imposter syndrome. What are some of your current goals now as a more experienced provider when it comes to burnout prevention and self-care? Just recently, I have started focusing really pretty intensely on saying yes to things that I are aligned with, with life that I want and saying no to things that aren't affirmatively in line with the life that I want and the values that I have. So uh, for a long time, from uh, still to this day, I see myself as sort of a people pleaser. I, I, I don't like that feeling of someone being angry with me uh, or being disappointed in me. Uh, that's something I still probably uh, struggle with more than, than a lot of people. And uh, I realized a little bit later in my life, even past my training, that, you know, even in my early career, I was saying yes to everything that was asked of me in my career, uh, to some extent at home and in personal life. And you can run out of room and energy and mind space doing that. Mm -hmm. So I've really been focusing lately on trying to uh, do fewer things, but do them with all my heart uh, and 
and and say no and not feel as guilty when I have to say no to things that I can't fit in right now or that I choose not to engage with right now. Mm -hmm. I love those words of wisdom. Thank you, Dr. Stern, for sharing all of your thoughts on burnout prevention and self-care. And if folks are interested to learn more, they should definitely check out Committed Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk with you. also offers workplace workshops to help your team buffer against the stresses of daily life. Therapy Through Life is known for the Burnout Prevention Hackathon, which teaches your team self-care strategies that are backed by research to help you interrupt burnout and promote self-care. Now that work has moved primarily to virtual and work from home, Therapy for Real Life has adapted the Burnout Prevention Hackathon for the online community. Get in touch to discuss your interest in stress management, burnout prevention, relationship building, and other self-care workshops and how to adapt these trainings for your team's needs.